At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> as we are in our second week of the series called Fulfilled, uh, His promise kept our longing met. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And um, man, this is the Christmas season. Uh, I absolutely love Christmas. Anybody with me there? Yes. Uh, I am the type of guy that I told my wife, I'm like, hey, it's uh, November 1st, we need to get the tree up. And she's like, what? And I'm like, no, we need to. Like, it's Christmas. It's the Christmas season. So our tree has been up since the beginning of November, and, and like, we decorate the whole house. We want it to be very Christmassy. Uh, the Christmas music is cued in October uh, in the car as I'm jamming down the road. Um, that is what I love about Christmas. It's a beautiful time of the year, and it is like you got to start it early because the problem is is that you put up all these Christmas decorations December 1st after Thanksgiving and then what happens four weeks later you got to tear them all down right I want to enjoy them right my wife is the type that January 1st hits and she's like okay everything's got to go tree everything burn it all get it out it's over we're done Christmas is over get it off like out and so I love Christmas and the Christmas season one of the things that I love most about Christmas is gifts. Um, growing up as a kid, I was always like, man, gifts are so cool, right? But over the years, I have developed this love to give gifts. I love giving gifts to people. I love seeing their face. I love watching them as they open it. When I give my daughter a gift and she's like ripping it open and the excitement she has, or like when they come out in the morning and they see all those gifts under the tree and they're like, oh my word, this is incredible, right? I love giving gifts. I love seeing joy in people and thinking through like, man, they're going to love this gift, right? I want you to think for a minute. What is the greatest gift that you've ever received? What do you think the greatest gift that you can remember that you've ever received? When I started to think through that, I'm like, man, there are so many gifts that I loved. Like my dad loved to give gifts also. I think that was just like, how I developed the, the, the love for it. But my dad loved giving gifts and he would try to like outdo the year before, right? So one year I asked for a black stallion and I was a little kid and sure enough, I looked through the window and here's a black Shetland pony uh, in the front tied to the tree on Christmas morning and I was like, oh my word, it's a black stallion. And, and I remember he gave me my first 20 gauge and I remember, you know, he, he bought us a Nintendo when they first came out, like the original Nintendo with like Excite Bike and those type of things. He bought us that, and I was like, wow, these are great. But when I look back at all the gifts in my life, and I look like, what is, what is my greatest gift? What would what, what I love? And I think I can narrow it down to, I love when my daughters give me gifts. 
Like, I love when they put their time into it and they give me a gift. Like, I can remember the first card my daughter, when she was like two, three years old, she drew for Christmas morning and she colored it and it was a piece of construction paper folded in half and she wrote me a little message in there and she brought it to me on Christmas morning. She said, here's your Christmas card. And I remember going like, oh my gosh, I love this. Like, right here, I have this watch on. My daughter last year, uh, my seven-year-old Kinsley, she was uh, at school and they give her like the Santa shop, right? So there was $2 I gave her, like you can go shopping for mom and dad. And she goes and, and, and buys me this watch and wraps it. Now, this watch probably costs 25 cents in China. I don't know. Um, they ripped my daughter off. Um, they, she paid $2 and uh, it doesn't function as a watch. Uh, you can't do anything with it. It's just a showpiece, I think. Um, so I wear it sometimes and um, it brings me great joy because my daughter gave it to me. Now, I can't tell time with it, um, but it's a really cool watch, um, I guess. But, and I actually broke it in the back a minute ago and I had to put it back together. But it's a great gift. Why? It's not about the gift. It's not about this gift may be so insignificant, but what made the gift great was the person that it was coming from. What made the gift great was the relationship that I had with the person giving the gift. Relationship changes everything. And as we look at our section of the Christmas story today, we find similar realities. Seemingly insignificant people and places become great, not because of who they were or what they've done, but because of their relationship with Jesus. Relationship changes everything. We're in week two, as I said, of our series, Fulfilled, and uh, where we look at highlights of Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies throughout the Christmas story. And our hope is that through studying these texts, we would see how in Jesus, and when, he fulfill, when he's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, he also fulfills the longing of our hearts. That he also fulfills the longings that we have in our hearts and so today, uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If not, it's on the screen. Um, this takes place sometime after Jesus' birth, um, when the wise men, as we know the story, the wise men came. They came looking for Jesus, the baby, and they wanted to bring him gifts in Bethlehem. They find him. And so hopefully what we'll see today from our passage is that in Jesus, the least can become the greatest. We're going to look at three truths about greatness in the kingdom of God. And the first one I want to show, with you, or show you is this. Greatness isn't based on our reputation. Greatness isn't based on our reputation. Matthew 2, verses 1 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem, 
of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, when we look at the context of this passage, the context is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? And these wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they were searching for this baby, searching for uh, Jesus. And why were they doing that? Because they wanted to worship him, right? Then we have Herod, the king uh, at the time. He hears this and what does it say? It says he's troubled. Why would he be troubled? Because this is like a threat to him. Why? Because the child born is said to be the king of the Jews. And so Herod, he's threatened by this. He's troubled by this. And the thing is, is that Herod wouldn't understand the scriptures. Herod didn't know the word of God. And so Herod, what he does is he calls the chief priests and the scribes, uh, the teachers, the scholars of that time. He calls them in and he says, he asks them a question. He says, where's the baby? Where is he born? Now, these would be uh, scholars, as I said, they knew the Old Testament, and so they had no trouble in answering that question. They literally said, yeah, we know. He's in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, when we look at verse 6 in that passage, in our passage today, verse 6 quotes Micah 5.2, which they're drawing this from. Micah 5.2, which says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of, in Israel, whose uh, coming forth is from the old, from ancient days. Now, there are some differences in Matthew's quotation of Micah in our passage. The most significant one that I want to point out to you today is the addition of where he says, by no means. He says, by no means least among the ruler of Judah. What this does is that it highlights the greatness that is the true meaning of the passage. Matthew inter interprets the text to emphasize that the insignificant village of Bethlehem has become truly great. Why? Because the Messiah was born there. This little insignificant town of Bethlehem that was not really known all of a sudden became great because the Messiah was born there. Matthew's addition of the word for, after he says rulers of Judah, it makes it clear that he sees Jesus' birth in Bethlehem as conferring importance on the town in contrast with the insignificance of Micah's day. So in Micah, we see this insignificance, and now Matthew, he shows that it's great. So in addition to Micah 5.2, the final words of verse 6 are taken from 2 Samuel 5.2, where David is being anointed king of Israel in this passage. It says, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So Matthew is making it clear the status of Jesus as the son of David, born in the city of David, to rule like David over the people of God. So the Messiah has come out of the insignificant city of Bethlehem to shepherd the nation back to God. 
Now, of all the holy places that God could say, I want my son to be born, the King of kings, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, of all the places, he chooses this little he chooses this little town of Bethlehem, this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. Now, six miles up the road was Jerusalem, the holy city, where he could have had his son be born, raised as a king. Man, this would be great, right? We would never picture this, that he would choose Bethlehem. But what we see throughout the entire Christmas story is that God uses insignificant people and places to remind us of how he works. What we learn is that our reputation doesn't define our greatness. Whether it's negative, positive, our reputation doesn't define our greatness. Bethlehem wasn't anything special and had no reputation for greatness, yet God chose to use it. Church family, you need to know that your past doesn't define you. God does. Your reputation doesn't define you. God does. See, this is the thing. God is in the business of taking insignificant, broken people that with, with horrible pasts, horrible reputation, and using them in a powerful uh, way in the kingdom of God. Man, I know this because I'm one right here. God chose to use me, and I don't know why. I'm a broken individual. I have a reputation in the past, just like everyone in here. How many of you guys are broken? All of us, right? I would say that everyone in this room is broken in some way. And God is in the business of using insignificant, broken people to advance the kingdom of God. And I'll say this, don't let your past define how you think God sees you. Or don't let your past define how you think God can use you. God used insignificant Bethlehem and God can use you. Bethlehem was great because Jesus is great. The same is with you. Greatness isn't based on our reputation. The second thing I want to look at is that greatness isn't based on our identity. We look back in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Then we skip down to verse 7, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The word translated as wise men in verses 1 and 7 is magos in Greek and, and sometimes translated as magi. 
Magos, originally the title of a Persian priestly caste who played an important role in advising the king, was uh, applied more widely to uh, learned men and priests who specialized in astrology and the interpretation of dreams, and in some cases, magical arts. So the Magi were found all over uh, the Roman world, uh, but were specifically associated with uh, Babylonia. And so these were Babylonian astrologers, enchanters, magicians, or or wizards of some sorts uh, who studied the stars. And it makes sense because why? They literally were following a star to follow or find Jesus, right? So they were studying the stars, uh, and it says they saw his star when it rose. The identity of these guys was that they were magicians and sorcerers who for sure weren't worshipers of God. These guys weren't worshipers of God. And so after assembling the chief priests and scribes to find out where Jesus was born, Herod calls uh, the wise men together and questions them about what time the star had appeared. And then what he does is he sends them out to find the child. He tells them, when you find this child, come back, give me word. Why? Because I want to go worship too, right? Now, we know Herod didn't want to worship Jesus. Ultimately, Herod wanted to destroy him. It even says in verse 13, Now, when they, lay, or, or, when they had uh, departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child. To destroy him. Herod wanted to destroy Jesus. The thing is, the chief priests and scribes had the identity of being the most religious, right? Herod, in our story, had the identity of being a king and the one that was most powerful, like he was the most powerful uh, man in the world at, at the time. Like the Magi had the identity of being a, a pagan astrolog- astrologers or enchanters or magicians. So if I asked you, who would you pick would be the greatest in God's eyes? I doubt we're going to say, yeah, the pagan sorcerers are the ones that are greatest in God's eyes. But here's the truth. These are the individuals in the story who rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They're rejoicing over finding the Messiah. While the most religious, the chief priests, the scribes, while the the most powerful Herod, they were doing nothing. The magi, or the wise men, they show us that greatness in the kingdom of God isn't based on our identity. It's not based on our identity. Rather, it's based on how we respond to Jesus. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shares about greatness in the kingdom of God. He says this in 18 uh, verses 1 through 4. He says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would he say this? 
Think about a child for a moment. A child is totally dependent on its parents, right? A child can't provide for itself. It can't take care of itself. A child needs its parents to provide and do things. It's totally dependent on the parent or the guardian. And so that's what he's saying here. Unless you come like a child dependent on me, knowing that you have nothing to, to offer, you are, you are not able to do this on your own. You have to come to me as a child and depend on me, the Father. You see, greatness doesn't come from your individual identity. Who you are, rather, whose you are and how you respond to Jesus. The Magi's identity was that of a pagan brokenness, but they were great here in the story of Christmas because of how they responded to Jesus. Which brings us to our last point, probably the most important point here, is that greatness is based on our relationship to Jesus. Greatness is based on our relationship to Jesus. Look in verse 6, it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then it says in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. As we've already seen, greatness is not based on our reputation or identity. Rather, greatness is based on a relationship to Jesus. Bethlehem, which we saw in our passage, Bethlehem was an insignificant place. In the words of Micah, it's too little to be among the clans of Judah. But according to Matthew, what he says, it is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. See, the difference between Bethlehem being a little unknown town to being a place that will, literally it says, will bring a ruler who will shepherd the people of God is its relationship to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to Jesus Christ. It's the relationship that makes it great. The Magi were astrologers, magicians, and priests of a false religion following the stars. But what does it say about them? When they entered the house and seeing Jesus, what did they do? They fell down and worshipped him and offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They were expensive gifts. These weren't things that you would normally find um, in a Jewish home. The, the Magi weren't great because of their reputation or their identity. But the thing is, they became great because of the way they responded to Jesus and their relationship with the King of Kings. See, greatness is based on our relationship to Jesus. And Jesus changed the definition of greatness. If we look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the kingdom of God, greatness is about being humble and lowly, he says. Philippians 2 shows us the humility of God, of Jesus himself, humbling himself to become obedient to the point of death on our behalf. And this is what we see the Magi do in the story, humbling themselves and falling down to worship Jesus and bringing him costly gifts as an act of worship while those that had all the answers, those that were great, did nothing. See, what makes Bethlehem and the Magi great is nothing within themselves, nothing that they did. It's solely found in their relationship with Jesus. And so because of that, in Jesus, the least can become the greatest. So as the band comes, we're going to close. The question I want to ask you this morning is this. What is your relationship with Jesus? When when you hear that and you start thinking about that, what is your relationship with Jesus? Are are you banking on your reputation, what you've done, on your identity, who you are for your salvation? Are are you saying, man, I I served enough, I give enough, I, I do enough, I help enough people? I come to church this many times. Are you banking on that for your salvation for eternity, to spend eternity when you die, to spend eternity with Jesus? Are you banking on that? Because the Bible's very clear on that. Are you banking on your relationship with Jesus for your salvation? 2,000 years ago, Jesus, through the story of Christmas, changed the definition of greatness. And now we see that in Jesus, the least can become the greatest. And guys, this is the good news of the gospel. This is what we call the gospel, the good news. No matter your reputation, no matter your identity, what you've done, who you are, doesn't define you. Jesus does. The Bible is very clear about this. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't say, hey, go do all these things and you will be saved. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Confess with your tongue that you're in need of a Savior. All of those other things are great. They come afterwards when you have a relationship with Jesus. Then they mean something. It's about our relationship with Jesus. Don't matter where you are. Doesn't matter how broken you are. Doesn't matter what your past looks like. 
God accepts you for who you are. I know that because he accepted me. And I'm broken. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.